You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. And on this episode, we're talking about books about family. So we'll interview two authors in this episode. First, we'll talk to Angela Garbez, author of Like a Mother, A Feminist Journey Through the Science and Culture of Pregnancy. Then we'll talk to Lori Frankel, uh, author of This Is How It Always Is, a novel about a family with a transgender child. Then we'll finish up by talking about some of our favorite families in literature. My name is Angela Garbez, and I guess I'm an author now. (laughs) I worked for years as a journalist and writer. Um, I worked for the Seattle News Weekly, The Stranger, as the staff food writer. And some of our listeners might be familiar with one of your pieces uh, about breast milk. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's really the piece that launched this, that changed my entire career, to be totally honest. So I started at The Stranger. My daughter was, my oldest daughter was eight weeks old when I started there. So I was working full time. So I had two full time jobs, basically. I was mom, I was a writer, and then I was breastfeeding, which is also, you know, very, that's like eight hours of your day, whether it's feeding or pumping. And I felt really, I had gone into breastfeeding naively thinking that it was free and easy. <laughs> and I was really unprepared for how difficult it would be. And how often I would kind of be like, is this even worth it, right? And I felt that people face tremendous pressure to breastfeed. And the conversation is usually framed as, you know, breast is best, as though formula is inherently bad. And I just, there, I just had these questions where I was like, this doesn't really make sense to me. And I also thought, you know, if we're being told that, you know, this is immunologically best for your baby, which is what is really the emphasis, when I would ask, you know, how does that work? No one had an answer. And I thought this was pretty basic stuff, and I was owed a better explanation. And the cool thing about working as a journalist is you can just call an expert up and ask them, and, like, they'll (laughs) tell you. They feel, like, mildly obligated to answer your questions. So I found an evolutionary biologist who um, studied human milk, and I asked her all of these questions. And I wrote this piece that I was hoping would be relevant to people, not just new moms, but people who are interested in reproductive health, public health, I don't know. I just, you know, I really wrote it with this urgency and uh, looking back, desperation. But I just, like, this is what I wanted to know. And within a day, the article went viral. It's been shared, like, over 250,000 times. It's had, like, millions of page views. And it was very validating because I felt like, okay, like, these are questions that I have and I'm not the only one. People want to be talking about this. And these are questions that, like, we deserve answers to. Um... So based solely on the success of that article, I got a literary agent who wondered if I wanted to write a book. And I said, yeah, I have a million other questions about pregnancy. So that article really kind of set me down this path. And I also, you know, was interested, like, what the the F happened to my body, right? (laughs) Like, it felt totally different after giving birth. And I felt like a totally different person, but I also felt I was definitely still the same I don't know so there were these things becoming a new parent seems like so scary there's simultaneously this like overwhelming amount of research and books Mm -hmm. on the subject and yet these like huge gaps in the research how did you figure out like what to trust that's a really uh that's a great question um 
I, well, so, I mean, a lot of this was that during the time that I was pregnant before, and at this point, you know, I'm not working as a writer, I'm not working as a journalist, I'm just someone who wants information, and I read so many pregnancy books, and the thing that struck me as weird, I mean, I would pick them up and be like, oh my God, and put them back down, because I found that they were, I mean, they're advice books, they're how-to books, and the assumption is as though there's a right or a wrong way to be pregnant. You know, like, not that there's infinite ways to be pregnant, just as there are infinite ways to be a person, right? And so that had never sat well with me. And so I was always gleaning evidence-based stuff. I was gleaning facts, right? That's what I found that I wanted. I didn't want this moral framework. I didn't want someone to tell me that this was right or this was wrong, that this was good, that this was bad. I just wanted to know what what is, what was. And that was sort of became the guiding principle when I set out to write the book. In American culture, we really encourage the sublimation of the mother from the from the very beginning, from pregnancy, right? So you were who you were for decades before you became pregnant. But suddenly you become pregnant and then, you know, like, oh, you like tea? Well, you know, that may not be great for the baby. You like coffee? Uh-oh. Right. Like, so you like sushi. Right. Yeah. Or like soft cheeses. These all of these things like you're just expected to throw that out, you know, and it's this I think it contributes to this idea that mothers are in many ways expected to be to sacrifice themselves, their lives and their time. And that continues, you know, like who do we who is the default caregiver? Right. It's it's typically the mother. When you were talking about the the coffee and tea thing, it reminded me in the book you say there's this cultural standard that's so well established that we joke about it, proudly proclaiming ourselves bad moms. Right. And we stray from this expectation. And you say we're trying to reclaim a term we'd be much better off abandoning. Can you talk about that idea a little bit of like a bad mom and why you think we should toss well, that out the window? I mean, I think a few months before I started writing the book, I went and saw that I, I was assigned to review the movie Bad Moms. <laughs> and I was like, it was, it was, it was not good. I didn't think it was good. Um, and again, it goes back to that, this idea, if we were to take out morality from the conversation, mm-hmm. you know, that's where, that's like, it's, this is the thing I'll probably like return to again and again. I just don't think it serves anyone. It sets people up to feel terrible because if you're not one, you're the other. And it's really, yeah, like, I don't like, I don't want to like laugh about how I'm a bad mom because I drank a glass of wine, you know? Yes. That idea yeah. just really stuck with me. I have a almost two-year-old, and I thought, like, oh, yeah, I I do that. I hear my friends who are parents do it. Like, oh, yeah, we let her watch, you know, half an hour of Blue's Clues or whatever. Yeah. Oh, we're such bad parents. And it's like, yeah. we're not bad parents. We love her. We All the parents I know want the best for their kids. Mm-hmm. And you do have to make these decisions in, like, a world that it has a lot of complicating factors. Yeah. And sort of the science, like thinking about the science and the implications based on that, rather than saying like, oh, I'm a good mom or I'm a bad mom. Mm-hmm. Seems more useful and also sort of like kinder to yourself. Yes. I mean, I think that there's that. We're not generous enough with ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah for sure. And I think that, you know, if we were to take away this idea of good or bad, then we could just like, it's much more, it's much easier to say about yourself and others, they're really, we're just doing the best with what we have. Yeah. That's what everyone's doing. Yeah. 
And in the research, it seems like it becomes clear really quickly <laughs> that these are cultural ideas and they're specific to um, the place where you are pregnant or parenting and that there's different ways to go about it around the world. Did you find any interesting like policies or um, techniques that you've seen in place outside the U.S. that you think we would do well to adopt here? Oh, yes. Um, well, so it's a very distinctly American thing. So I should say that, you know, I gave birth in a hospital. I ended up both times. I ended up having two C-sections for which I'm very grateful for both of them. Um, so, you know, I'm not against Western medicine at all. You know, I think medicine can be great. I'm talking, you know, at the institutional level, right? So it's a very distinctly American thing that at the turn of the 20th century, obstetrics and gynecology and emerged and um, childbirth became this thing that, that doctors presided over. For centuries around the world in every culture, pregnancy and childbirth was really guided by midwives um, who were people who were not, you know, medically officially trained, but they had lived expertise. Um, and pregnancy and childbirth were seen as really you know, normal <laughs> and significant, but normal events in a person's life. And they didn't need to be managed or treated like a, like a condition or an illness. Um, it's very new that we, we, we do this. And it's mostly, and it's in America that we do it, you know, in, in Europe and in countries around the world, you're still, people receive, um, the care happens still in like midwifery practices. And I think that it's, that's, you know, patient-centered care. Um, and for low-risk pregnancies, that's really, a, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. So I think something like that is a great policy. Like, or really having, not assuming that the medical establishment, the institutions of medicine, are, are you're always best served by that. You know, that's, a, that's an assumption that we make. That's a big cultural thing that we operate from as though it was a truth. And then there's... Um, I mean, family leave is a policy, you know, like in, in Germany, I think it's like you get you get 12 months of paid leave um, and then you actually get in, with a certain amount per month. And then you also get you get more money if your partner also takes leave at the same time. <laughs> you can have up to two years. I know it's, oh my it's so God. sad. Right? And then you can take up to two years more unpaid leave. And when you return to work you are guaranteed an equivalent position in your in your uh, in the company that you worked for wow i mean we are so far behind i mean parenting is work you know pregnancy is work what your body does like at the end of pregnancy a person's body is operating at over two times the normal metabolic rate it's moving 50% more blood i mean that's literally work labor. Right? <laughs> literally labor yeah and so these are labor issues right and so you know, if you want to say that we're a society that values children and families, you really actually have to value that work. We should be paying wages for domestic labor, right? And we should be prioritizing people's ability to care for not only children, but for themselves. So I'm a big believer in paid family leave policies. And, you know, that's not just for new parents. I mean, that's for aging parents and their adult children who at some point whether you are a parent or not, like you're part of a family and someone you love is going to need to be cared for. And you should have the right to that time to do that and provide for them. Um, there was one thing that I also wanted to say, which is that, you know, these, these ideas, these cultural assumptions, um, one of the things that was 
that struck me the most in my research was really that, again, when we talk about at an institutional level, when we talk about science, when we talk about health, when we talk about medicine, what I learned is that our definitions of health and science are based on white male bodies. You know, it wasn't until 1993, which is only 26 years ago, that Congress passed a law saying that if you receive funding for your clinical trials from the National Institutes of Health, which is most people who do clinical trials, you are legally obligated to include women and minorities. So, I mean, we are like females are seen as a deviation from the norm, right? So the very idea of what is a healthy body or what is a body doesn't necessarily include us. And I think that that's something we have not reckoned with or acknowledged. So, and that's what I mean when we, when I say like, we don't care about women, we really like, if this is what we're up against, like this is what's built into, it's built into our systems and institutions. And it's really, it's very hard to undo that. And you can't even begin to do that unless you acknowledge it. And you got into um, some of the history of obstetrics in this country that I found really horrifying and didn't totally know about. Could you speak to some of the history of the origin of the practice? Sure. Essentially, doctors took pregnancy and childbirth care of pregnant people away from midwives. There was an active movement to discredit them. Right. And then that's when we started putting that's like the establishment of medical schools that did not necessarily allow women and people of color. So like, OK, so at the turn of the 20th century, 50 percent of babies were born by like were born with midwives and midwives were mostly immigrants and black women. This was very much a working class women's job. And then it was taken away. And it's not a coincidence. Like we have a diverse you know care field now, but really like in in medicine and in health, like administrators, the people with a lot of the power are overwhelmingly white men. That's just true. And that's not an accident. Um, there's also, yeah, there's a really shameful racial history to obstetrics and gynecology. J. Marion Sims, who is considered, you know, quote unquote, the father of modern gynecology, he invented the speculum, which anyone who's had a pelvic exam or, you know, a pap smear knows, like it's this instrument that whatever, we don't need to go into the details. So he invented the speculum. Um, and he was really well known for, uh, he developed a way to surgically repair fistula, which is great, except that what we've learned is that he did this by experimenting and operating on enslaved black women. And he, they were seen as property. He got them from their owners and they were never compensated for this. He operated on patients 12 or 13 times and he never used anesthesia. And this is buying into this, you know, racist belief that somehow black people and slaves were, they didn't feel pain as much um, or, you know, or they just didn't care that they were experiencing pain. And only after he had perfected these, his techniques on enslaved women, did he start doing this on white women, always with anesthesia. So, yeah. There's, um, it's hard because I don't want to seem, I don't want to focus on just the negative, right? Um, and I don't want to be a downer because I'm, I'm hopeful in many ways, right? Um, but once you and Ernest start researching female reproductive health is, there's a dark history there. And again, I just feel like we have to acknowledge it to ever, to move forward 
from it in any way. Um, but that was all there, like, to learn. And it was really... Um, I didn't know it. I think I understood. Like, I've always identified as, not always, I mean, I've identified as a feminist for most of my life, you know, since I was about 12. And to really spend the time researching this and learning this was eye-opening and and enraging and really made me committed to talking about reproductive justice and reproductive health. Speaking of motherhood and feminism, I feel like there have been more books than ever before coming out of the subject. We both read The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. Mm -hmm. Motherhood by Sheila Heady is great, but like there's some there's like one type of person who's getting these book deals. Um and that becomes very clear. Yeah. <laughs> um are there more perspectives that you would like to see reflected in the body of literature? Are there some that really resonated for you when you were reading all these books on parenthood? Yeah, um, I actually wrote an essay that was published in November on The Cut, which is the New York Magazine's women's platform. Um, and it was about how, like, you know, there's all these pieces about the mom book trend of 2018, and overwhelmingly, they're all about they're all books by by and about white women mostly middle class white women and that's like i mean the fact that i got to write a book about something that is seen as like universal motherhood as a woman of color is it still feels like i got away with something you know and um you know, there were books that there are books I, I would love to see we need more books from people of color we need more books from people who are poor and low income um, and that experience, because that makes the experience of parenting and motherhood completely different and more stressful. Um, and also, you know, like I like to think when I was writing my book, I went out of my way to make it inclusive. Right. And I interviewed people who were trans and non-binary. But, you know, that's not my story to tell. And I'm not an expert on that. And I like to think that maybe my book creates some space for that. But we need more books on parenting from those people. And there's, yes, I mean, we, we need more books overall. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm also happy to, like, I, I feel like I just got here, but I'm, like, happy to step out of the way and make more room for more people. Um, we need to, it's not about, like, who gets a piece of the pie. I feel like we just need to, like, make more pie, right? <laughs> more um, pie, more books. Yeah. yeah. But there's also, you know, like, Louise Erdrich, who's, you know, a celebrated novelist, she wrote a book about a memoir about motherhood that no one talks about. It's called The Blue Jays Dance, and it came out in, like, 1995 or 1997, and people don't know about that. Yeah, I didn't know about yeah, that. Yeah, and it's a it's a beautiful book. She's a wonderful writer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a great book of essays that came out last year, last year, the year before that, called Guidebook to Relative Strangers by a poet named Camille Dungy, and the book is, it's, it's essays, Journeys into Race, Motherhood, and History. And it's an incredible book that also, like, somehow got left out of all of these. I mean, I wrote this. Like, there's also a book called Revolutionary Mothering, um, which really gets it to it, the idea that mothering is a verb. It's not gender specific. And how do we build communities that that, that allow people to mother in the ways that are appropriate for them? Um, and there are two books. Like, I'm, the fun thing about being a published author is that people start asking you to blurb books and read books in advance. And there are two books that are coming out in April of 2019 that I was so excited to get a chance to read. One is called We Live for the We, um, 
on the power of black motherhood, political power of black motherhood. And it's by a person named Danny McLean, who has reported on reproductive justice for years and writes for the nation. And it's a really, the, our books are very different, but it was, I mean, it's so research driven, but it was also very much driven, I identified with this by her own experience raising a black girl and being a black mother in America. And so she had all these personal questions and then just kind of just set out to research things and find answers to the questions that she had. Um, and there's also a book called Women's Work that's coming out uh, again in April by a woman named Megan Stack. And she raised, she's a white woman who had her children while working as a foreign correspondent. Um, she worked for years as a foreign correspondent in Asia. And so in order for her to work, she hired very cheap domestic labor, which, I mean, we have that here in America, but it's it's different in, she was in China and in Singapore, no, in, in India, rather. Um, but she really, she just, it just explodes, you know, the idea of domestic labor and race and class. And I just think it's great. There are more books talking about this stuff. What else are you reading these days? Um, well, right now I am reading, I'm on this Valeria Luiselli kick. Are you reading The Last Children? I, I am. <laughs> because I've been thinking a lot about family separation, a friend had suggested her book, Tell Me How It Ends. Mm -hmm. So Valeria Luiselli had volunteered um, to do the intake questionnaire and translate for migrant children. And this is not from like this round from the last year of family separations. This is from like, you know, she goes into like how this is partly, you know, Obama related, Obama policies. And so like, it's very, um, she's like, not, no one gets out unscathed in these books, right? Um, so I read this book, which is a short book, and I had the hardest time with it because it's just, just brutal and heartbreaking, but also I didn't want it to be over because I wanted to keep learning and I wanted to know more about it. And then I saw that she had a novel and she, I read an interview with her. She said, she was like, I was so angry and I had so many feelings that I couldn't really go straight into writing a novel about this. And so she wrote, tell me how it ends to kind of work out some mm -hmm. of that feelings and research and like more of the political, you know, rage and anger and feelings that she had. And then she was like, then I realized like I could go back to the novel and see it as like a way of asking lots of questions on the way we go into that story. Um, so yeah, so that's what I'm reading now, and I'm I'm already I'm only like 50 pages into Lost Children Archive, but I'm like I don't carry it in my bag because I'm like it's at night, it's like a treat mm -hmm. for me to sit down and read it. Yeah, so. it is really good, and it's I mean she getting into that children's separation stuff is just mm -hmm. it is heartbreaking, but she's a wonderful writer and yeah. so thought provoking and creative in the way that she brings the pieces of it all together. I'm also I'm listening to it on audiobook. And then I'm reading, you know, always sort of books about bodies and things about bodies, which is a research for my next book. Do you read Gross Anatomy? <laughs> I do. I have a copy of Gross Anatomy. <laughs> um, and I consult it regularly. And I have my um, anatomy and physiology textbook that from when I was taking classes at Seattle Central that I refer to very regularly. And I also have the anatomy coloring book, which I totally, sometimes when I just need to, like, um, relax my brain, I color it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much for being here today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me.
I am Laurie Frankel. Um, the book is This Is How It Always Is. It is a book about a family with five boys, the youngest of whom becomes a girl. So it is a book about a, a transgender child and how her transition um, impacts the, her entire family. But it also is, I hope, a book about parenting in general and the ways in which this is how it always is. Um, it never goes according to plan. It always is um, unknown and unpredictable. It always presents you with things that you don't know what to do about and yet have to figure out how to do about them anyway um, with not nearly enough information. And it's terrifying. Um, and I hope that it is It is sort of, a, it is true. It is a book about not just, I guess, parenting in general, but being part of a family in general um, and the ways in which it is it is both unpredictable and yet there are and yet necessary so there are all of these um givens like well you are of course going to keep loving each other and keep showing up for each other so then the question becomes how i love the way that you write about parenting oh, thank you. uh there's a i pulled a little quote uh it is a truism that everyone offers but no one believes until after they have children the time will actually speed fleet enough to leave you jet lagged and whiplash and racing all at once can you oh, talk about nice. how <laughs> your own experiences as a parent kind of shaped how you write about being a parent? Yeah, gosh, I would love to. I, you know, parenting is um, both very inspiring and very time-consuming and very brain-consuming. So unlike other things I think one becomes obsessed with, parenting takes up all of the room there is. So, you know, other things that I have written about because I was interested in them and I really wanted to talk about them, originally inspired by them, are different than parenting, which which just doesn't go away. And it doesn't matter how frustrated you get or how tired you are, um, there just keeps being more of it. But it changes all the time. And I think that's true for better and for worse. So like, one of the things that happens um, is that you don't, Parenting doesn't allow you to get cocky, I think. Um, and if you do, <laughs> woe be to you because um, you don't get to keep it. And so as soon as you think, oh, I've understood this challenge and I have accepted it and I have surmounted it and I've done something about it, oh, it changes and becomes like something else and something new. And that makes it a really great thing to write about. And it also just makes it, you know, kind of an all-consuming thing. Um, people talk a lot about how, how wonderful and magical and... Um, you know, and loving parenting is, and it is those things, but it's also all of these, these other things. Um, and, and it doesn't ever go away. And, and I like that narratively. I mean, never mind in my life I like it. <laughs> as a, as a storytelling thing, because it can't, it can't be plot solved. It, you know, mm -hmm. a magician can't come and wave a wand. There's no magic thing that can happen. Um, there's no decree that can be passed. There's there's nothing that can be done to to make those challenges lesser. And so um, that makes it, I think, an interesting thing to write about. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk to you about the family at the heart of the story. Okay. There's so many of them. There's so many of them. <laughs> it's a huge family. Um, can you kind of talk about both where the idea of having like this big family yeah. with all these boys came from and also the characters in particular. Yeah, totally. I was wed to those five kids from the beginning. They were part of the seed of this thing. I cut 250,000 words wow. from this book. Yeah. So like two whole books got cut from, from this book. Um, and, and almost all of it changed wholesale over the course of writing it. 
accept those kids. I was wed to those kids from the beginning. And early readers, including both my agent and my editor, felt like there was too many characters to keep track of. (laughs) My agent kept saying to me, like, three. Three is a big family. But I really wanted to look at a few things. Um, But, you know, one is, like, how something like this affects, you know, everyone in a family. But mostly I wanted to think about... um, you know, kids. Kids are weird. Kids are kids are so weird. <laughs> All kids are weird, and um, and m- much of the weirdness of kids we think is not only acceptable, but in fact, you know, admirable. We think, oh, that that child is so creative, or that child is is so delightfully quirky, and we think this kind of weird, okay. This kind of weird, also okay. This kind of weird, totally love it. This kind of weird, oh no, that needs to be um, accommodated or taken to a doctor or taken to a psychiatrist because that kind of weird is not okay with us. Mm. And I really wanted to look at which 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 is which, which times. Um, weird is quirky and which times weird is unacceptable and and has to be changed and why. The best way I can think of doing that was to look at as many kids as possible and as wide a variety of kids as I could. Uh, If I could have done a dozen children, I'd have done it, but (laughs) that was too many characters to develop. Um, So it was, you know, sort of a question of figuring out the balance between um, so many people that you can't keep track of them and they, they just become caricatures, you know, getting few enough that I could actually develop them, but enough that, that I could look at this at this huge range of, 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 of being a kid, of, mm-hmm. of the different ways there are to be a kid. Mm-hmm. I love what you just said about your agent and your editor because it reminds me of that scene early in the book where um, Rosie's having a conversation with a neighbor or something and she's like, oh... Really? All, all five of them, huh? yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, I can yes. see just... Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Five does... It's a, it's a lot of kids these days. Yeah. Yeah. But they're great. And I feel it's interesting to, to hear you say that you are s- sort of trying to straddle that line between character and caricature, because they all feel... They feel like real kids to yeah. me. Yeah, oh, I'm so glad. So, yeah. I mean, they do now. <laughs> they they took a lot of editing to do it. Um, originally, the twins were not twins, mm-hmm. and and that and that was the kind of compromise that I that I landed on. Like, you can kind of keep track of those two because they they go together. Mm-hmm. They're like a character and a half, mm-hmm. basically. And, and so that that's what made it manageable. I think. <laughs> um, so Poppy's gender is at the heart of the story, mm-hmm. but there are all kinds of other more subtle challenges to gender roles. So Rosie, who's the mom, is sort of the primary breadwinner, and Penn is the dad, but he's a novelist, and he stays home and spends a lot of time with the kids while he's writing. The oldest son both plays the flute and is the quarterback. Why do you think family is such a ripe setting for exploring gender? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it's it's exactly right. That is the question. I don't know the answer to it, but um, it was indeed the plan. That was the other thing that was in the seed of this for me. I thought, oh, I'm going to switch the gender roles of the parents as much as possible. So indeed, she's the breadwinner and she's the scientist and, you know, she's this pretty hardcore doctor um, and he's an artist and not the kind who makes money. (laughs) He's the one who stays home and, you know, does a good bit of the parenting. Um, and, and yet try as I would to, to flip their gender roles. And I, and I did, um, I think she's still the mom and, and he's still the dad and he's very much like, Oh, well, it'll be fine. And we'll just show up and see what happens. And you know, everyone's going to turn out great. And she's like, no, we need a plan. And I'm very worried about all of these things. And, and for my money, I just think that's very much the mom role. And, um, 
and maybe that's not gendered. Maybe that's that's parent. That's a different thing. That's like a whole another level of thing. It's momming rather than you know femaling. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. Um, but it was interesting to me, like watching watching myself try to subvert this and really just be unable to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. Families are interesting in general because it is a it is a nice it is a nice tight very small community and and everyone in it has has a role um and those roles change certainly but but in general most families most people in them you know have have a role of some kind and where those fall along gender lines and where they uh subvert gender lines is an interesting is an interesting question and there's a lot to play with there again I was wanting to look at when is it okay for this little boy to play the flute and when is it not okay for this little boy to go to school in a dress mm-hmm. and where do we draw those lines and and why and how. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going back a little bit yeah. to what you just said about uh, Rosie being sort of a hardcore doctor. Yeah. Some of the scenes that I really loved are when she they're in Thailand and she's trying to figure out how to like be a doctor without all this stuff yeah. that she knows how to use. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about your research process for that? Oh, yes. Well, so first of all, I am I am not a doctor. I'm so not a doctor. Um, and so all of that research that that was the hardest research that I that I had to do or in fact have ever had to do because I didn't even know the questions. I couldn't I couldn't look it up. I I didn't I I went into it thinking, OK, what I'll do is I'll just write it wrong and then give it to someone to fix it but I couldn't even write it wrong I couldn't I couldn't imagine it I didn't like, I literally could not imagine it I didn't know what to do or say um so I had to look at all of this research uh, my friend Carol Casella who's a wonderful novelist and a Seattleite um she's in fact on Bainbridge Island she's a She's a Pacific Northwester, I guess. Um, she's a wonderful novelist. She's also a wonderful physician. And she helped me with a lot of it. And she kept saying things to me on the phone, like, I don't want to talk down to you. And I was like, no, <laughs> listen, you can rest easy on that front because I don't know anything. And she she talked me through a lot of things. And then she read the drafts and, you know, said helpful things like, well, we don't usually say the word holes. <laughs> you know, like, we're looking for something more like puncture wounds. And I'm like, oh, right, wounds, wounds, wounds instead of holes. That's great. Um, and she said to me, like, oh, you know, you can watch surgeries on YouTube now. And I was like, oh, fabulous. You know, and I dialed that up on my computer and watched maybe the first three seconds before I had to put my head between my knees. I'm like, no, no, I, I can't do this. My had to have my husband put a developer app on the browser so that I could look at, I could read these articles without looking at the pictures because the pictures were making me sick. <laughs> I'm really not a doctor. Um, so indeed, it took a lot of research. At the, in the author's note at the end of the book, you say, I know this book will be controversial, but honestly, I keep forgetting why. Has that been the case? Has the book been controversial? The topic has been controversial. The response to the fact of the book has been controversial. In fact, the response to the book has not been controversial at all, and I've been so, so grateful for it. Um, I have definitely received a not insignificant amount of hate mail and trolling and nastiness um, online, social media, um, and, you know, right into my inbox that it starts like, Dear Laurie, and then goes on to make, you know, all sorts of really terrible comments and, um, you know, and threats against against me and my kid and my family. And, um, and that has been, you know, 
appalling. But it is not in response to the book itself. It has been in response to um, interviews that I've done or articles that I've written in support of it, um, things that I have have shared about my own experience and and my family's experience, um, publicity surrounding the book, the idea of the book, Mm -hmm. the um, topic of the book. But but no one so far, (laughs) knocking on wood, um, has come up to me at a reading or, um, you know, has said, like, I have read this book and and here is what is is made me so angry about Mm -hmm. the book. Um, And and so unsettling as that has been, it is really a comfort um, that that the response to the book has been has been incredibly loving and and positive and um lots of people who have written to me with with great enthusiasm and gratitude and and i'm so happy about that and i think that i mean in some ways it feels a little bit like preaching to the choir but i also think that it speaks really well of people who read books (laughs) that that people who read books that people who who go to bookstores for events that people who go to libraries for events are people who are interested in hearing about ideas they didn't have before and experiences that are not their own. And and their response indeed has been really, really loving and grateful and wonderful. Um, so the it's almost like controversy was the wrong word. Mm-hmm. It's certainly inspired some or or at least inspired people to send me some hatred and anger. My suspicion is that that hatred and anger wasn't inspired by me. Mm-hmm. Or the book, mm-hmm. best I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rosie and Penn and the rest of the family move across the country, and they decide to keep Poppy's past as Claude mm. a secret. Yeah. And your family has taken a different approach to your child's gender transition. Yeah. So in a Modern Love column, you wrote, we as a family decided to be open and honest about it to celebrating her story instead of hiding it. How did you come to that decision? You know, we were really, we were and are continue to be very, very lucky to be able to take that approach and, in fact, not to have to make that decision. Um, The truth is the family and the book makes a different decision mostly because of plot. Mm -hmm. You know, the need for people to keep turning pages of a book Mm -hmm. Um, that that. there's nothing like a secret festering to to drive a novel. <laughs> so so that is really why they they make that decision. I've also probably thought about this more than any single human being on earth <laughs> between, you know, having this child and, and and writing this book and I have to say that if we moved I don't I don't know what I would do. I think it is a very difficult question without an easy answer, which is what makes it a really good thing to write a book about. Mm-hmm. Um, that is what I want all of my books to be about. Not not the ones I write, the ones I read. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it it is I think I, I love books where um, the question is a difficult one. I am frustrated when um, the answer is obvious and it's just a question of blocks roadblocks, you know, getting there. Mm-hmm. I I am interested in this topic because there are really good arguments on on both sides, mm-hmm. and and that's what makes it heartbreaking and difficult. We were really lucky to, we are really lucky to live someplace extraordinarily progressive, and um, you know my kid goes to the public school a mile from her house, at, to which we are districted, and and has been met there with nothing but love and, and support um, and understanding. And 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 therefore, we haven't had to struggle with these tell or don't tell mm-hmm. decisions. The other thing is that the transition is 
is a is an ongoing one, mm-hmm. as all childhood is. You know, it is a it is a slow and and ongoing thing. And so it wasn't like she woke up one morning and became this other person. It it happened very very slowly, and so in front of it an entire community of people it it wouldn't have been possible to hide that without moving but indeed it was very important to to me to be able to say to her this is this is not something to be ashamed of this is not something to um to be afraid of this is you know growing up and and this is what being a kid is it's undergoing immense change with hopefully, the love and support of your family. So, you know, we'll see what happens tomorrow, and then tomorrow we'll see what happens tomorrow, and then tomorrow we'll see what happens tomorrow, and, you know, and go from there. Um, however, I am I, I, I am very aware of how blessed we are to, to have that option. Mm-hmm. You wrote this book kind of a long time ago, so you're working on something so else? I am working on something else, yes. I am in... What I hope are late stage edits <laughs> of the next novel, which is called One, Two, Three. It is about triplets. It's about three sisters mm-hmm. this time. Um, so it is it is about family and it is about that sibling dynamic. Um, but um, the the issues at hand are, are, are different than this one. Um, do you come from a big family? What makes you no. interested in families? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I have one sister, okay. um, and I have one kid. So, you know, she's poor her. She's an only child. Um, so I don't. But I, I'm always interested in families. I'm always writing about, really, I think, non-traditional families, ways in which um, people who we don't necessarily usually think of as family can be family, or people who we might, you know, traditionally think of as family, like they're genetically related, are, in fact, kind of a quirky, different sort of families, the ways in which um, there are lots of different ways to make a family, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, uh, you know, the idea of like, here's what a family is by definition. It is a man human and a woman human who get together and biologically create a child, I think, is really l- not not just limited, but in fact, damaging way to, unfortunate way to look at families. Um it is an option, certainly. It is, it is a, one of the ways. There's so many ways, and I think that the wider the wider we definition of family we make, as with all things, the better the world gets for everyone. The, the wider definitions make the world a better place. I also am interested in families because most people are in one, <laughs> um, one way or another, yeah. you know. And again, it's it's not necessarily a, a, a biological, blood related kind of a family. Most people are, though, members of a family. And that is really complicated. You know, one of the things that I think we say all the time is about good friends is, oh, she's, you know, she's like family. But then what we say about, you know, the people who, who are related to us is often um, much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm interested in family, you know, sort of like both the good, the good and the bad, mm-hmm. um, the way in which those relationships are, you know, are foundational and, and very close and, and ideally very loving and supportive, but also often really fraught mm-hmm. and really complicated which is, you know, what makes for good novels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, are there other novels about family that you recommend, some of your favorites? Oh, my gosh, yes. I mean, so many of them. <laughs> I love Karen Joy Fowler's novel, We're All Completely Beside Ourselves, which is a very beautiful, interesting take on family um, that should be read by 
by all humans. The Great Believers has beautiful, super interesting families in it. Um, I love David Mitchell's take on families. Oh, and American Marriage beautiful, interesting, super wonderful stuff about family in there. Again, very non-traditional family. Are there any literary families you just wish you could be a part of? Like you read them and you're like, oh, that's really I cool. wish you were my mom yeah. or my sibling. <laughs> <laughs> God, there must be, right? Yeah, see, because I like big quirky families in literature and now I can't think of any. My mom grew up reading um, Swiss Family Robinson and Laura Ingalls Wilder books. And I feel like those filled the shelves in our home as examples of like families that were bigger and quirkier than ours were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, it's true. Children's books are really great on this topic. Um, and, and I don't, and I read a lot of children's books because I have a child and, um, but, and I don't, and I, it's a good, this is a good point that I don't usually think of them when I'm thinking of, oh, books that I have loved, which isn't true because I have, you know, I have loved them. You know, it is also often true that the children's books are big on like orphans um, <laughs> without, <laughs> without families. Um, I was very partial to Pippi Longstocking as a child, mm -hmm. but she is part of a really interesting family. It's just a different kind of family. It's this, you know, non-traditional family. Um, Ramona Quimpy, that is a family that I that really imagined family. myself to be yes. a part of. Um, a book, book, you know, I read all of those books many, many times growing up on the East Coast and for my life could not understand why it was always raining. <laughs> and then I moved to the Pacific Northwest and was like, ah, <laughs> I get it now. Um, and that's a really good example of, you know, they're a small family, but where, um, you know, it's not that everything goes well and it's not that they're always kind and nice to each other but th th this idea of like well but we might just call it quits we might just walk away from this we might just you know scream and yell at each other and never work it out it's not even it's not floated it's not even an, an option um and i i found that very i guess comforting as a child but in reading it to my own child i find it pretty inspirational um you know, the, the kind of storms that they weather um, without ever... I'm frustrated by um, books and also you know, movies and TV where people who love each other are just, like, screaming at each other and, and lying to each other and, and walking out. I, I kind of think, like, I want to have a conversation. Like, have a conversation. And and, and then let's see what happens. <laughs> um, and so that is the that is one of the, the things that I am, um, you know, drawn to, I think, as a, as a reader. It's interesting to hear you say that because that really struck me about this is how it always is. It is such a warm-hearted book. It's such a, like, it's so generous. Yeah. The characters are so generous to each other, and the, the book is generous to the characters, and even when people disagree or make mistakes, it really is the sense of, like, okay, but we're here, and we're together, and, like, what do we do with it? So, yes, I really see that. I Thank see that you. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is what I want to read. And therefore, it is what I write. I also think it's just more interesting. Yes or no just doesn't seem like nearly as interesting a question to me as, OK, how? What's interesting is both of these parents show up and say, well, you know, of course, we're going to figure this out. And of course, we love you. And if this is who you are, then, like, let's do this thing. But how is a much more difficult and therefore I think interesting question and indeed one that is quite nuanced and therefore requires you know conversation So when we spoke with Lori, we touched a little bit on literary families that we love. Do you have any? 
Yeah, it's interesting that she brought up children's books because when I was thinking about this, all of the families that I thought, oh, I want to be a part of that family are from books that I read and loved as a kid. And I think there's something about family in and children's books. It's like it's the site of so much drama when you're a kid. So I thought of the Weasleys, of course, from Harry Potter. Absolutely. Just the, the best family. Uh, every There's enough siblings that everybody will have somebody to identify with and maybe at your worst you're a Percy but on better days you're a Bill (laughs) and who Uh, doesn't want one of those jumpers (laughs) absolutely I definitely want a jumper with my initial on it and um I feel like sort of like the Quimby's in the Ramona books it's such an example of a family who maybe doesn't have like the easiest circumstances and yet their love for each other carries them through and they figure out how to make it work around all of the assorted quirks of um you know arthur weasley's all of his muggle things that he's sort of enchanted and um you know all of these rowdy kids everywhere in this house that keeps building up and adding on and finding space for all of them so i love that family that's how I felt about A Wrinkle in Time, too, mm-hmm. which I reread as an adult and didn't find quite as charming. But what remained, I think, was this like loving family making weird sandwiches in the kitchen at midnight, just having these conversations with each other that are like so lovely and warm and intimate and just being like, I want to live in that attic. Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> yeah. And I think as I also have reread Wrinkle in Time relatively recently, and as an adult, it's still a family that I really value. Like, I think that Mrs. Murray is a really fascinating parent. Mm -hmm. She's sort of single parenting a lot of the time. And she really encourages these kids who are sort of unusual and kind of quirky kids. And she wants them to be who they are and celebrate their own strengths. And like, as a mom, I'm like, oh, she's she's like a role model mom, you know? For sure. Yeah. Mom goals. Yeah. (laughs) Hashtag mom goals. Like, what's... What's interesting about family is that in a lot of ways, you're kind of stuck with them. And it, it's, uh, of course, you can and people choose to leave the families that they're born into and, and create found families. But there's sort of like these interesting thorny relationships when there's someone that you like love and want to or sort of like have to be around, but also, <laughs> uh, you know, resent or envy or resent and envy and love and admire. Uh, it's just so complex. Uh, and especially as stories move out of sort of the children's age that we're talking about and into like more adolescent or adult fiction, you get all of these like really naughty relationships that make for great, great fiction. And are there any family sagas that you would recommend to people <sighs> spanning multiple generations? So I just read Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, but it's a multi-sweeping uh, family saga, multiple generations, um, set in Japan and Korea that I really like. Um, how about you? Well, as you and probably many of our listeners know, I'm the like nonfiction evangelist <laughs> in this family. <laughs> how about family memoirs then? Yeah, absolutely. I've been reading so many. Um, I read... The Rules Do Not Apply. Mm-hmm. Um, have you read that one? Mm-mm. Which is about a journalist who, it starts with like her whole life falling apart. She was pregnant when she started a trip and had like the love of her life. And by the time she comes home, neither of those things are true. I have read the New Yorker article she wrote about that miscarriage, mm-hmm. uh, which is an incredible article. It's a beautiful piece of writing. And her book is just more of the same 
and it's so hard and so complicated and interesting and you know that's as I mentioned earlier in the episode something that hasn't been a part of my life yet making a whole new family but I'm definitely interested in the subject um so a book I read recently was Nicole Chung's um all you can ever know Mm -hmm. which is about the experience of being adopted but also very specifically about transracial adoption she's someone who her birth parents were korean and she was adopted by white parents so i identify so strongly with so many aspects of being adopted that she describes then there's this whole other layer that Mm -hmm. hasn't been a part of my life and is so interesting to read and she's so generous with describing a very complex issue um, speaking of memoirs, um, we've talked about the Argonauts a couple of times. We'll probably just keep talking about it on our we, Argonauts fan podcast. We don't want to assume that you've heard all of our podcast episodes, but many of them feature us talking about this book <laughs> because it's so incredible. So if if someone doesn't know, what is the Argonauts about? Um, what is it about? It's a memoir, and she put, um, Maggie Nelson is the author. She draws in a lot of um, sort of critical theory, too, so it's about her um, romantic partnership uh, with um, her partner, who's undergoing a gender transition, at the same time that she is pregnant and giving birth to their child. So it's about forming a family, it's about um, sort of our own roles within families and how those change, it's about trying to get pregnant and being pregnant and having a child and it's just like so um it's so messy which Mm -hmm. I like because that is so much the experience of like living in the world you know like I feel like I it's I've read so few books that fully capture just like the messy experience of being a person and having a body and I think she does that so well I also picked up The Department of Speculation, which mm-hmm. is just a tiny sliver of a novel. It's fiction. What? It's quite literary fiction. <laughs> um, and it's about that experience of transitioning from who you are before you start a family and who you are after, the dynamics with your partner. And I think it was just a couple hours yeah. of audiobook listening, but it was riveting. Yeah. Speaking of a couple of hours of audiobook listening, I... I'm going to pitch a book to you because it was really short. It's less than four hours. It is a novel. Um, But I just read this book called Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss. It is... So I read it in January, and as soon as I finished it, I was like, well, that's my favorite book of the year. (laughs) I don't actually know, but definitely, like, top ten. Top top ten. It's about a family. It's about a young woman who's, like, 17, and her father and mother. It's set in the UK in the 70s. And this blue-collar family joins a professor and three archaeology students to spend two weeks like reenacting the Iron Age. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And um, the daughter is just this fascinating character and the family is really fascinating. The father is not a good person. He is abusive in like several ways. Um, And Sarah Moss manages to capture this very complex relationship that Sylvie, who's the young woman, has with her dad and with her mom, where she he's taken her out on the moors for her whole childhood, and he's really interested in the Iron Age. And so it's sort of like a point where they relate to each other. She's also afraid of him because he's abusive, but she also still sort of loves him because he's her dad and then she has this really complex relationship with her mother as well where she 
sort of resents her mother for not ex- extracting herself from the situation, but also uh, and sort of like not handling it better. But then, you know, she sort of pities her mother as well and, and still loves her. Um, and on top of all of that, you have this wonderfully atmospheric writing about summer they're in Yorkshire and it's hot and there's like a scene where they have to walk way across a beach at low tide they're trying to like gather muscles because that's like what Iron Age people did apparently (laughs) Um, so it's incredibly atmospheric Um, as the time in this reenactment goes on people start to lose the plot a little Uh, they get a little um, kooky and kooky is not the right word they get a little uh, aggressive and they start uh, reenacting sort of these more like ritualized parts of life in the Iron Age, and one of the things that the, that these Iron Age families did, or these Iron Age communities did, is like sacrifice people to the bog. Uh, so the book opens with a description of one of these sacrifices, and it's sort of unclear. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, whether it's a historical sacrifice or uh, the ending of the book. So it's great. It's really gripping. It's a fascinating portrait of a family. And it also is like very creepy and it's under four hours. On our next episode, we'll talk about books about difficult topics. We'll interview author Bonnie Ruff about her book about parenting and sexuality. And Christy Coulter's book about sobriety. Then we have a special KCLS guest, a librarian who's going to talk to us about some of her favorite books about topics like death and dying. Get ready to get real. Until next time, happy reading.